This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 405, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some with the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, it is Daniel Glass. I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Daniel Glass Show, only on the one and only Drummer's Resource. And um, on this segment of the podcast, uh, we are going to delve into the great John Bonham. This is the second of two parts, a two-part series about Bonham, his drumming, uh, and you know maybe some things that you did not know about John Bonham. Uh, a lot of people are obsessed with John Bonham, of course, and a lot of us know his material, know some of his famous grooves, but when you dig a little deeper, there are a lot of things that you may not have realized or you may not have heard in the music, and that's sort of what I'm digging into here uh, in this two-part series. Uh, the first part, of course, we looked at um, certain aspects of his playing, um, and one was that h- how much he actually looked to the past, that he grew up listening and playing, listening to and playing swing and jazz music uh, before really there was even a style called rock and roll and that he brought a lot of that to his playing. And so if you want to play like John Bonham, listen to some of his influences and some of those, uh, we looked at some of those particular influences um, in not only his grooves, but also in his soloing technique. And then we also talked about his gear and how, you know, a lot of people want to sound like Bonham, get the Bonham sound, but they set up their drum set in a completely different way than Bonham did, and they're not really paying attention to some key aspects of that. So if you did not listen to that episode, I strongly suggest you go back. I think it's uh, actually the 400th episode on Drummer's Resource, um, and uh, check that out. I got a lot of really, really great feedback about it when I posted about it on Facebook, Uh, A lot of people had, um, I I asked people essentially kind of to gear up for this part two episode. I asked folks, what is your favorite uh, John Bonham groove? What, you know, what do you, what do you love about John Bonham? And uh, got a lot of interesting answers back. And so I've tried to integrate almost every one of those into this episode, because this, this time we're going to look at some very specific aspects of Bonham's playing uh, that... Um, that factor into uh, what made him so good. Why was he such a great drummer? Why do we love his drumming so much? You know, so it wasn't just his influences. It wasn't just his sound and the gear that he used. Now we're going to dig into some specific parts. Now, I should say at the outset that because this is a, um, a podcast and unfortunately I'm not able to use licensed material uh, as part of my podcast, I, I won't be able to play the specific musical examples that I'm talking about. Um, <clears throat> however, what's really cool is I had uh, one of my students named Robert Hart, hello Robert, uh, made a fantastic playlist on Spotify of all the tunes that I'm talking about. Uh, so I will put the link, the Spotify link to the playlist for both last episode and this episode so you can go check out all the tunes and sort of maybe listen along while I'm talking about each one of these. Okay, so, um, and I, the other thing is, at the outset of this, I called this sort of like five things you may not know or you didn't know about John Bonham, and really it's sort of spread out a little bit. I suppose the last episode there were two important things, his, his uh, swing, his evolution as a swing fan, and his gear. Um, it's going to be a little more tricky to, to break parts three, four, and five down here. So we're just going to kind of be a little looser in that definition. So with all that preamble stated, um, let's, let's jump in. And I guess the first thing that I want to say about Bonham, which is, I think, part of why he is so effective and so popular and people instantly like him so much, is that he was a great rock drummer, and he could play simply. And even his more complicated drum parts sounded like they were pretty simple, like they were easy to play or that 
you know, you or I listening to him could play these as well. And I think it's a reason why a lot of drummers of that classic rock period, those classic rock drummers, uh, Charlie Watts, Ringo Starr, um, were so appealing because, you know, if you think of, of especially the first two, Charlie Watts and Ringo Starr, that really came about with the British invasion and were uh, so influential in, um, in, in, in affecting an entire generation of American youth and really the youth of the world, it was their... Um, of the ability for people to relate to them. So, in other words, if we just think about the Beatles for a second, uh, you know, they played their own songs, they wrote and sang their own songs, they played their own instruments, and that was a little bit different for its time. Not all artists of the period could play an instrument. Maybe it was a singer with some sort of random studio band behind them. Um, And that had sort of been more the formula prior to this time. Uh, The fact of a band being totally self-contained like the Beatles was fairly radical for the for the early and mid 60s not a lot of pop artists in particular had had done this maybe you played an instrument maybe you sang a song but you didn't write your own songs sing your own songs and play your own instruments and do it all at the same time so that set a new standard new formula and because of that it allowed many young listeners of the music to go hey they're doing that and I could figure these songs out, so I could do that too. So, you know, the Beatles, the Stones, the British Invasion was really a big sea change in terms of an entire new generation of youth all over the world going, oh, I can pick up an instrument and write these songs myself. And the idea of the band in the garage, the garage band, you know, um, which is how I grew up, playing in garages. There was there was no school of rock. You know, it was... Uh, you just found a place and you made it work. And it's probably how most bands still make it work today. But it was a simple sounding groove. Now, of course, you know, there's a difference. I mean, a lot of us can play the grooves that John Bonham is playing, but we don't necessarily sound the way he sounded. Just because you're playing the same part doesn't mean you can bring something to that. Um, And, you know, John Bonham's sound... One thing I should point out about Bonham, which probably is fairly obvious, but, you know, because of the way he was built and and his size as a a man, but he hit the drums very hard and very accurately. And I think this is another reason why his drumming translates so well on record. He just played so damn hard uh, that everything he's doing is very clearly stated. And I think, you know, I remember, I'll I'll tell you a quick story, uh, when I was going to music school in L.A. back in 1991. I went to the legendary Baked Potato many times because, of course, the greatest musicians in L.A. and from around the world would, would play there. And uh, I remember the the one and only time I ever saw Jeff Porcaro play live was at the Baked Potato. And he was playing with a kind of an all-star band called Los, Los Lobotomies, which uh, Jeff Lukather from Toto, I think Greg Matheson on keyboards, uh, you know, a bunch of those L.A. cats. And um, and Je- Jeff Beccaro was was playing drums. And what I be what I remember being completely knocked out about was how hard he hit the drums. I was kind of surprised. It was sort of a small club, and he was just wailing away. And when I talked to you know certain engineers and stuff after that, they said, "No, that's why Jeff Beccaro is such a well respected and 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 highly sought after studio drummer is because he hits with such force and with such clarity. And there's those two things must go hand in hand." Uh, that the the microphones love him and the levels that he gets uh, are um, very, very consistent, right? So I think John Bonham, were he in a different time and place, would have made a great studio drummer just because of the way that he hit the drums. So he he hit them I- exceptionally well. And, and that's especially true of his kick and his snare. So you really hear those kick and snare patterns. Um, the last thing I want to say about Bonham that I think makes his grooves sound simple or sound easy for our ears to understand is, is his hi-hat. And we did talk a little bit about the hi-hat in the last episode. Um, I mentioned that, you know, the way that he played the hi-hat, especially on a tune like When the Levee Breaks, it's deceptive because the kick and snare often with Bonham, you know, it's got this big Paul Bunyan, beefy, laid-back thing going on, but the hi-hat on top is driving along and uh, hearkening more back to almost kind of a, a, a jazz approach in the way that the music moves, the way Bonham mu- moves the music forward. So the hi-hat is almost a forward-leaning thing, while the kick and the snare are really rooted and grounded and have a very laid-back thing. And that's, again, 
part of the magic that you need to catch all those elements if you want to really sound like Bonham. So, you know, certainly um, Bonham could play simple, and a lot of times he chose the simple route, and that was a great route. You know, he made a lot of really great musical decisions. Of course, the most simple element of John Bonham's playing is on display in the most famous Led Zeppelin song, which of course is Stairway to Heaven, or Hairway to Stephen, as I like to sometimes refer to it. But uh, Stairway to Heaven, you know, first of all, he doesn't even come in until almost halfway into the song. But when he comes in, what does he play? He plays the biggest, simplest fill. And then just kicks into the most simple, you know, groove. You know, and it's just so great. It's so powerful and perfect and simple. And, um, you know, that, of course, everybody knows that fill. That fill is epic. And that that groove that he plays there is just, that's the first beat you learn when you sit down at your first drum lesson. Most people, if they're, you know, learning kind of the typical rock groove, right? So, so there's that kind of thing. Now, um, another way that Bonham played in the, in the sense of how we interact in the band, was that he used space really well. So in the previous example, Stairway to Heaven, he allows for a lot of space in his groove and with his fills. He never gets too complicated. And I think it serves the song really well. You know, it's sort of an open part. Do, 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 do. It's this very eighth note feel all the way through, at least till you get to the faster part at the end of the song. But he he sticks with that. He doesn't play a lot of fancy 16th note fills. He keeps it very focused on what's happening in the guitar part. And, you know, by the way, this uh, there's a, a video which is actually called What Makes John Bonham Such a Great Drummer. I'll put the link to that in the, in the show notes. Um, and one of the things, one of the points they make in this video is that Bonham was such a great drummer because he was really listening to the guitar, to Jimmy Page's guitar, and he was really responding to that. And I think there's a, a you know, a, a, I'll give you multiple examples of this, but I think this is something that Bonham did exceptionally well, so that he didn't just come off as a drummer keeping time, although he kept time exceptionally well, but he came off as a much more musical kind of drummer. And um, so... I also think that Jimmy Page was very adroit as a guitar player and as a riff writer because he didn't fill up the whole, you know, every second of the music with his guitarists. Yes, there were only essentially three guys playing instruments, so they had to fill up the, the, the space. But if you think about the very beginning of the very first Led Zeppelin song on the very first Led Zeppelin record, which is Good Times, Bad Times, um, the riff goes... There's all that space open. What kind of a riff is that? You know, think about that. But what does that do that allows John Bonham to step in and fill up that space, which he does very excellent. And what he does is, you know, so he's thinking in his mind, and he's using that as eighth notes, but he's also using it as sixteenths. So, and he's taking those ideas from the guitar riff, but they're leaving him tons of space. And so right from track one, side one, Led Zepp one, you immediately get the sense that Bonham is just filling up this all of this space in a very appropriate musical way that locks right in with what that guitar riff is all about. Um, Another great example uh, of, of where Bonham does this that's, that's a pretty, pretty simple example um, is the, the song The Ocean, right? So The Ocean, the guitar riff goes... Right? So, again, he, it's a, almost like a call and response kind of thing. You know, right? So page calls, Bonham responds. And it it leaves these nice, these nice big gaps. And then, of course, you know, there's a there's a little bit of an odd time. So um 
there's like a, uh, I think they drop a beat. I think you could think of it as a, a bar of seven four. So one, two, 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 three, you take a four, four, da, 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 they they do this little hitch on the rhythmic figure where they leave out a note. And again, when Led Zeppelin plays odd times, it really never feels too terribly odd timey. It it's easy to tap your foot to, hum along with, play along with. And I'd say that part of the reason we talked about Bonham's hi-hat uh, earlier and the way that he swung the hi-hat, but the hi-hat was really Bonham's rock. So that no matter what was happening, no matter if they were dropping out beats, and we're going to go into some more examples of this, um, that hi-hat was always there playing eighth notes all the time through all these different tunes. And so Bonham may have played the kick and snare and use those to kind of copy the melodic aspects of the guitar line, but the hi-hat was kind of the glue that held it all together and is very, very, very consistent. And whether or not that was by design or just that's how he held these beats together or how he placed these sort of little odd time uh, moments against the hi-hat as a way to keep himself in time, it's very effective. And it allows all of Led Zeppelin's crazy moments where they drop beats or they do odd time signatures or all these different kinds of things to, to seem to flow seamlessly. And we as the listener are not bothered by that. You know, so if you think about bands that consciously went out, all out in, in their odd time, you know, work, a lot of the prog rock bands, Genesis or uh, Yes, or, you know, these kind of bands, they didn't really have that many um, giant commercial hits, at least during the, the 60s and, and early 70s, because they were more interested in taking these rhythmic excursions. Led Zeppelin managed to keep their rhythmic excursions in a, uh, always in the pocket and always just feeling like a toe tapper. And I think Bonham just kept, kept that hi-hat going. So I really wanted to point, point that out. Um, all right, so the next point I want to make, I've been talking about Bonham's simplicity and how he kept things simple, and I, and I want to call this ability of his simplicity against complexity, okay? Which sounds like a dream theater album or something, but <laughs> simplicity against complexity. But the idea is that, you know, it, this is just sort of in keeping with, with what I was just talking about with the ocean, which is a, a, a minor example of this. Um, but we get into some other things where the song moves in a, a very, what we call a polyrhythmic way. In other words, there's multiple rhythms, multiple time signatures happening, or at least multiple phrasings. And Bonham is able to keep them all together at once so that we never feel lost, even though we feel the push and pull of these, of these odd times. And the first example I want to mention, of course, is Kashmir, right? And Kashmir is just amazing how the song fits together because honestly, if you were a beginning drum student and you learned one groove, which was dum, bap, dum, bap, you could play Kashmir. And that's the, the genius of Bonham. Now, what's going on is that the groove all the way through is just that very basic groove. But on top of that, the guitar is playing 3 8, you know? So, ba, na, 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 now, if Bonham had played with him, I can't even do it. I can't even sing it. But it would have sounded a lot more weird and a lot more difficult to, to handle. So the guitar is in 3-8. The drums are in 4-4, four, four, but they're really not in 6-4. Four, four, four. They're in 6-4 because when the vocal comes in, the vocal, the vocal um, line is really four plus two. It's six, six beats. And so that's, you know, it, that's the genius of Kashmir, at least from a rhythmic perspective. It's that it's, it's very hypnotic, um, in, kind of in the same way that when the levee breaks is hypnotic, right? The levee breaks, 
you know, Jimmy Page, of course, at this time, and Robert Plant were into middle, you know, Far Eastern type of music, Moroccan music, uh, some of these more exotic styles of music. And so when the Levy Breaks has this kind of drone going on, just this note, is just part of the whole thing with this, you know, just endless kind of, it's just one chord. And, and it's all this tension until they get to the... So tension and release, that's the release. But at the beginning of the song, you don't know when it's coming. It goes on, that that drone, right? So it's sort of a very sort of a Middle Eastern kind of a hypnotic drone idea. And it's, of course, the same in Kashmir. And of course, Kashmir, uh, you know, is, uh, uh, you know... It brings to mind exotic, uh, it's a, an exotic location. And uh, so the the point of the song works beautifully. Again, Bonham just lays down what would we would consider a very straight groove, but over the top of that is the 3-8 guitar line, the, the, uh, the vocal line, you know, broken up really into a bar of four and a four of a bar of two, which which Bonham demarcates by crash at big crashes at the end of those sections. And then, you know, you've got the kind of the harmonic minor. Right? So it's it's very exotic sounding. And I think that's part of what made Kashmir work, you know, so so very well. Um, it's it's Led Zeppelin working together and playing with these things and yet keeping them simple on a basic level. So simplicity against complexity. Get it? All right. Another great example of this, and this is something I'm going to talk about as we as we get a little further into this podcast, is the song Dazed and Confused. Now, what's really interesting about Dazed and Confused, and I know because I've been listening to Led Zeppelin since I was a kid, and all these songs threw me off. It took me a while to like find one. You know, just like the beginning of the Led Zeppelin song Rock and Roll, right? Everybody thinks that the song that 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 opening drum thing starts on one. But if it's if that starts on one, then when you get into the song, the song enters in a very strange place. So once you, you have to physically turn your brain around and realize that the first three notes are a pickup. And then that jumps into it. So Led Zepp was already kind of doing sort of these rhythmic illusions. And that, of course, goes back to the original uh, Little Richard song that Bonham got that from. And I've talked about that many times uh, here on the podcast, the, the Keep a Knockin'. So Bonham didn't invent that, but it's um, they were playing with rhythmic ideas a lot there. So Dazed and Confused is sort of the same because the the beginning line of the figure, it's it's in, tw- say, we'll say 6-8. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, boom, jit. You know, typical kind of heavy blues groove, right? But the line starts on the sixth beat. So it's, uh, 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 uh. Um, 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 right? Now, I've heard that for so long that I forget that when I first heard the song, I thought that one was one and two, three, four, one and, uh, because that's what it sounds like, because you want the phrase to start on beat one. But instead, it starts on the, the sixth beat. And that, you know, and then the way Plant sings his line on top of it, it's a little bit like Kashmir. We have these different things happening. And it would I would always be confused because Plant's line, been dazed, starts on the sixth beat as well. And it's not until the da 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 which by the way is again uh, an odd time. It's a, it's in, it's a five, it's, it, they drop one. One, two, three, four, five, one, two, three. No, no, maybe they, they keep it at six. Anyway. Uh, but, but the point is, again, it's, it's, it's that where is one and how are they doing this? And, and you have to kind of rotate your brain in your head and sort of count your way through it to actually find one. So that's another example, in my opinion, of simplicity against complexity. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, I mean, certainly this song, uh, Black Dog, has a lot of that going on. Um, but let's, let's move to another point. We'll get to Black Dog in a minute. The, the idea of Bonham as a melodic drummer and him jumping on uh, the, the uh, grooves that, that Jimmy Page was coming up with. And so um, I want to give you a couple other examples of that. Uh, the first, and, and here we get into that really Bonham 
so effectively used his bass drum, maybe much more than other rock drummers. So the song, The Immigrant Song, right? And the riff on The Immigrant Song is... Right? So Bonham does this very cool thing. Right? Now, that's not easy to play for anybody and to keep it that in the pocket, that relaxed, and yet that powerful. He's hitting that hard on the bass drum, but it feels exactly right. And that's, you know, just a perfect example of how up top, the hands are just going, but it has, it, it really locks the drums into the, the, the guitar riff. And so it's an, an exceptional uh, early use of, of Bonham, you know, with that bass drum foot. And of course, again, on Good Times, Bad Times, he does those famous, you know, dual triplets with, with the bass drum. We all know about those. So Bonham was possessed of, I would say, a most extraordinary uh, bass drum foot, right foot. And he used it, you know, I think far to a far greater degree of success than any other drummer of that period. Certainly guys could play fast. Ian Pace has one of the fastest bass drum feet, but he didn't apply it as much as Bonham to the melodic uh, character of of the music, and that's, so I think it just makes Led Zeppelin the whole band is just so tight. They're all so keyed into into the these grooves. You know, they're all playing them. Um, another example of this is the is from the, the, the song, the actual song, the song remains the same from Houses of the Holy, and you know the guitar riff is da ga da 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 ga da ga da 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 ga da you know, while the hi-hat's going G G G G G up top. And he's putting little ghost notes in on the snare. Um, and he just nails that to the wall. So the, it's like the whole band is breathing and they're all taking a little rest on that stop. You know, it's it's it really tightens everything up and it just makes them all cook along together. Um, and I, you know, I often wonder about that, that left foot of Bonham. I mean, it's just one of those things, I guess, where he could just do what he wanted. But I think in the last episode, we talked about the bass drum, the setup of the bass drum, using a very large drum, not muffling it, uh, not cutting a vent hole in the front head, uh, in the recordings, you know, using silver foil, uh, or so I've heard, uh, on the inside of the drum to reflect the sound better. All these things gave that big solid, hard-hitting right foot the opportunity to play to its fullest extent. And I think that, um, you know, again, remember that the drummers did not hit hard on bass drums. This goes back to the swing era, you know, where if you hit too hard, you would drown everybody else out because there was no amplification. So it wasn't until really the 60s that drummers could even begin to play that hard uh, and to be able to get away with it, that the recording gear they were using could actually pick that up and it wouldn't distort, um, you know, the, what was being recorded. Um, so, you know, music in general, of course, was just getting louder and harder, and obviously it would make sense that drummers would play their, their bass drum much harder. But Bonham certainly was in a category all by himself in this regard. Another of my favorite examples is the song uh, All of My Love, from the album Into the Outdoor, which I think came out in 79. And I remember that's one of the first LPs I bought, or one of the first round of LPs that I bought. It was a really cool cover. There were four different covers, and you didn't know which one you'd get because the whole album was wrapped in a brown paper bag, and it was just like a, a stamp on the front that said, a small stamp that said Led Zeppelin Into the Outdoor. And I think something like it, it was a response uh, to Led Zeppelin saying, we're the most popular band in the world, and we could literally ship our next album wrapped in a brown paper bag sleeve, and we'd still sell a jillion of them. And so they did it. And But they made it cool because inside there were four different covers, and if you got water, if you dropped a little water on the cover, it had this weird kind of watercolor thing. I mean, the packaging on that album was just incredible. But the big quote-unquote hit off that album was All of My Love, and it was actually a, a something of a conflict within the band because... Um, you know, it's a it's the closest thing that Led Zeppelin probably ever played to like a, a real sweet pop ballad. And 
It actually is, I believe, um, Robert Plant singing to the son. He lost one of his children a couple years before, and it was a, obviously a horrifying experience for him. And so, you know, he's singing this very plaintive uh, ballad to, to the child that he lost. But um, it's, I always loved All of My Love. I, I, it was a huge hit on the radio when I was a kid. And I'm like, yeah, this is Led Zeppelin. And, and yeah, it's not a whole lot of love, but it, it still had the, the thing. And it still had that edge to it. And I think there's a bridge section and uh, like an instrumental bridge that they go to twice during the song and, and it's kind of a heavy thing and it goes get again get and Bonham throws a couple big fills in there but if you notice and you listen Bonham's going boom 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 and there's that bass drum again three in a row boom 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 not easy to play and to play loud and to play really just perfectly in the pocket. So um, there's Bonzo's bass drum again and being very melodic in that particular section of the song. The last song I want to bring up related to this point is, um, well, not the last song, but um, uh, Bonzo's Montro, uh, as in Montro, Switzerland. Now, uh, many Zeppelin fans or many casual fans of Led Zeppelin don't know this tune. This was on the very last Led Zeppelin record, which came out in 1980, Coda, after Bonham was already dead. Uh, they, it was stuff they had been working on, and they decided, and some outtakes and things from previous sessions, and they decided to put it together and call it Coda, because that's what happens in a piece of music. This is it. We're going to the end, and we're taking it out, and we're done. And it, that was it, pretty much, for Led Zeppelin. After they buttoned that up, they never, you know, they did a few reunion things here and there, and they played at the O2 a few years ago, but they never, and Page and Plant toured together, but they never... Um, never, you know, tried to resurrect Led Zeppelin and do long tours and all that. So Bonzo's mantra, I learned in doing research for this, because uh, is actually uh, stuff that was recorded in 1976, so four years earlier, when Bonham was very much alive. And it might have very well been a track that he laid down for some song that never saw the light of day. And so they had this drum track of, bon of Bonham's. And uh, I don't know if it was intended to be a drum solo, but it's a, it, the whole song is, is just John Bonham. And then after the fact, uh, Jimmy Page laid some, a few tracks over it, which sound a little bit like steel guitar and some kind of weird synthy things and maybe some regular guitar, uh, not steel guitar, pan steel, believe it or not, like pan steel, uh, pan drums. Um, but, What's what's amazing about it is that Bonham is doing that bass drum thing in a ridiculous way. He's like, boom, 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 You know, it sounds like he's playing double bass, uh, but of course, Bonham, uh, except for a very short period in the early part of his career when he was actually emulating Carmine Apice, who's the one who turned him onto Ludwig's when Led Zeppelin first came to the United States, and Apice had a, a a double bass kit, and so Bonham's first kit his first Ludwig kit was a double bass kit but then he really didn't need double bass because he he was so fast so go check out that tune Bonzo's Montro and uh from Coda and it's a fascinating look and probably some of you out there have heard uh and you should check these out if you haven't but the um the drums only versions of some of John Bonham's uh uh recordings or some of Led Zeppelin's recordings and of course there's the famous Fool in the Rain where you know tracks where all you hear are the drums through the whole song and it gives you a fascinating look and a listen to just how intense Bonham was and and to how you know you his playing is brought to life all by itself uh I think there are some a few others I can't remember uh, but you can find them on YouTube uh and it's just basically Bonzo's tracks soloed by themselves uh but this Bonzo's mantra is like an entire song of that uh, and v very much well worth a listen, um, if not as, okay, this is a great song, but it's just a really great look into Bonham's playing and really hearing all these things that I'm talking about, the way he worked his hi-hat and, you know, the, how hard and consistently he hit and what he was doing with the bass drum and how, how melodic this drum track is, even though there is no song over the top of it. So, uh, just that, that is the point there. Um, and we were just talking about Fool in the Rain. Of course, Fool in the Rain is... One of Bonham, Bonham's most famous grooves. It's a notoriously difficult groove, and I did talk about it last week. That it was, um, that it it was a, um, you know, a tribute 
to the Bernard Purdy, uh, both Jeff Procaro with Toto and John Bonham uh, in Led Zeppelin were uh, really knocked out by the, the drumming that, that Purdy had done, with, particularly with Steely Dan, where he laid down this, this halftime shuffle, what we know today as the Purdy shuffle, right? And uh, so Bonham, you know, brought this into to, to, uh, the song Fool in the Rain. And I, I probably mentioned this last week, but one of the things I really like about In Through the Outdoor, which is uh, the album that has all of my love on it, Fool in the Rain, uh, one of my favorite... Um, Zeppelin instrumentals called Carousalambra was that on this album they really uh, explored a very wide variety of styles and sounds and influences in my opinion very successfully while still maintaining the vibe of Led Zeppelin. Certainly it was different than some of the earlier albums but why shouldn't they be allowed to grow and change as other artists have? Um, and it, it just was interesting to you know to to listen back to that album but Fool in the Rain um, I think that I think that the entire song was derived, as opposed to Bonham listening to the guitar riff, the entire song was built on the drum groove in this particular case. I think Bonham heard the, the Bernard Purdy, heard Bernard Purdy playing it, you know, on uh, uh, Babylon Sisters and Home at Last, the, the famous Steely Dan songs where he uses it. And I think Bonham was like, shoot, I want to learn how to play that. So he came up with his version of it, which is pretty close to Purdy's. He's got a couple... Um, uh, little bends and twists in terms of his hi hat. He he goes back and forth between uh, the shuffle, but then he emphasizes like a a, a quarter note triplet thing. So and he does a little hi hat thing in there as well. Right? So all of those, Purdy definitely brought all those elements in, but, um, you know, in a way where Purdy approaches it more like a jazzer, where he's kind of riffing on it and playing lots of variations, Bonham picks one variation and turns it into a, a more kind of stable, traditional rock groove. So I think Fool in the Rain, Bonham was just fooling around with this groove, and Page was like, wow, let me come up with something that matches that, because it matches the groove so closely, and you know that the groove, Bonham was trying to capture what Purdy had going on. So it seems like that song came from the drums. But again, whether it's going one direction or the other, you could see how, you know, the riff, how Page and Bonham were were essentially playing off of each other. And who knows, maybe some of these other songs that I've been talking about, they, they began with the drums as opposed to the guitar. But I think it, it speaks to Jimmy Page, and I, I don't want to get too far off uh, topic, but Jimmy Page was just a genius at songwriting, at guitar playing, and at producing. Uh, he did all three of those for Led Zeppelin. And it, he was smart because he took advantage of the other members of the band and their strengths. He, he didn't, it wasn't just, you know, everybody played their part. It's another reason why I think, for example, The Police is such a great band is because each of the three contributes, plus the voice, of course, but each of the three instrumentalists contributes to the overall flavor. It wouldn't work. You couldn't just stick another drummer in to play, you know, a basic beat. It's it's all very intricately interwoven, the interplay there. So I think Led Zeppelin were very, very successful at that as well. Um, especially in a time when most rock bands, the rhythm section just held down something very consistent and everybody else did whatever they were going to do on top of that. And they weren't necessarily perfectly aligned. Okay, so... A couple more tunes, um, and this is this gets a little more tricky now, especially for me to explain it rather than play it. But one of the things that Bonham did exceptionally well, and this sort of is a little bit like the Days and Confused thing, confused thing, is that he would start the riff or start his figure not on one. He would start it in Days and Confused. It starts before one, uh, and in um, uh, 10 Years Gone is the first tune I want to talk about. It's, you know, when he comes into the song, there's this riff, guitar riff. Right? And Bono's back there, just laying it down. But when he comes in, one and, and he hits his crash on the and of one. 
Now what that does is it really locks him into the to the melody. He doesn't break up. In other words, he doesn't go crash. He goes and it just is one of these things where he's listening to the melody and responding to it and coming up with something interesting. And I when again when I first heard that song, it threw me a little because the crash was not on one. The crash was on the end of one. So I I kept getting off in my own timekeeping in my mind while listening to that, not realizing that, you know, he's he's playing the crash on on the end of one. And by the way, um, some of these tunes, I'm actually going to put up in the show notes some transcriptions of these tunes uh, so that you can, um, you know, go ahead and, d- and check them out, download them or watch them and, and watch the transcription go by, listen to the song and, and listen as I'm talking about all these things. And it'll help you to put A, B and C together. So I'll put up some links uh, to some of these uh, transcriptions, uh, particularly Fool in the Rain. Um, what else? Um, I think the ocean, so you could see how the, they drop the beat and how that works. Uh, maybe song remains the same. Uh, immigrant song for sure. Boom, boom, You know, that's that's pretty basic. Um, all right, so um, Black Dog. Let's talk about Black Dog for a second. And I actually have to go look at the transcription. I was listening to Black Dog today, and man, that song is, they are just... Um, doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, basically, and th- and it seems to change. But there's a bar of five four, a bar of a bar of four four, and then a bar of five eight. And what's cool about it is when they come out of the really what f- the five four is is it's a bar of four four. They just add one more beat, so it's like. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, ba da ba da 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 So, and four and, uh, and four and one and two, and four and da da uh uh, and four and one e and two, and he crashes on and. So, first of all, you're already confused because they've added a fifth beat to what you thought was four four time. And then he confuses you even more by playing the crash on the and of one. So, if Da 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 da. Right, three sixteenths followed by two sixteenths, and then a crash on the end of one. If that had started on one, in other words, one e and a two e and no one one e and a two e, he would be crashing on the e of one. If you're trying to count it. So my whole life, even when I listen sometimes to Black Dog now, I get thrown by that because. He's it's so tricky. But do 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 so that that note there is where he crashes. So crash and then of course they follow it up with a bar of five eight time. So certainly in you know, in 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 the case of uh, other Led Zeppelin stuff, um, not every song is simple to play. But again, I'm I'm looking at a transcription that I'll put up, and Bonham's hi hat the whole time, ever since that end of one, right? Da 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 cha 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 cha. Ah, the hi hat is always playing eighth notes. So. Uh, you know, Black Dog is certainly a clever example. And I I, I remember reading uh, an interview with Jimmy Page where he talked about Black Dog, and they had such a hard time counting it that Bonham had to click them off. So go listen to Black Dog right now, and you'll hear every time, you know, you hear him click. He gives them a click to get them into the song. And I never heard that before, but Jimmy Page mentioned it, and I go back and listen to it again. It's like, oh man, that's really cool. And what's really crazy about this song is that they don't play it the same way every time. Sometimes it's a 5-4 bar before that, but sometimes they they leave it in 4-4, which makes it a little easier to figure out, but not that much easier, especially when they throw that 5-8 in at the end of the of the tune. So, you know, it's just another example of Bonham's, you know, simplicity slash complexity relationship. And 
and just the cool stuff that that he does and the way that his mind worked uh, in that we think we know what's happening um, yet are you know and I'm sure there are plenty of drummers out there that play black dog wrong and play uh, the beginning to rock and roll incorrectly because they because we just think it starts on one because we're just so used to rock and roll songs always everything starts on one the cymbal crash is always on one but Bonham really played with it and and that wasn't uh, wasn't necessarily the case okay I've got a couple more examples and then I'm going to wrap it um one more of these over the bar liney beginning in a strange place is from the song in my time of dying and I remember when I first got hip to this song I was probably in the seventh grade because I remember taking the bus home from school. And I then when I got off the bus, I had to walk uh, about 10 more minutes to, to, to get home. And I remember, you know, and I would do this a lot as a kid, just chewing on this jam that they do at the end of In My Time of Dying. And I'll tell you why. Again, the the guitar lick starts on one, so it's three, four, one. Bed up and bed and dip and bed da 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 now that in and of itself isn't that hard to figure out, but Bonham it go Bonham plays right through it and crashes on the end of one where the thing starts. So he goes, uh. And it's it's very off-putting. And then the whole song shifts and it goes into the to the other half and they go back and forth. And so and he just rolls right through. And it just it just gives this tune this stomping, thundering, like a chugging train, this this part of the tune. And they do that a lot. I mean, uh, trampled underfoot, you know. This like driving train kind of medium tempo Led Zeppelin thing that they get into. Of course, the um, the uh, immigrant song, same way. You know, and I think Led Zeppelin, again, maybe maybe better than any other band could get into that space and just, it's like a locomotive that you just couldn't get off of. Um, so, you know, in my time of dying, check that tune out. If you don't know that tune, it's, it's one of the epic Led Zeppelin tunes and it doesn't even get to that section I'm talking about until sort of two-thirds of the way through the song and then at the end of that whole section they go back to the main groove of the tune and it's it's it is totally epic and Bonham's drumming on it is 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 insane and if you've ever tried to play it because I I probably mentioned in the last one I've been I'm going back and playing with a bunch of guys from college that we play Led Zeppelin tunes, and we're playing together for the first time in 30 years. And I don't think we're going to play that tune at our show, but uh, it's a workout. It's a hell of a workout. Um, so I want to I wanna wrap this up by mentioning a couple other points about Bonham that I feel are important and um, that I think a lot of people need to hear in order for you to understand what made Bonham great and why understanding these will help you to become better as a drummer. The first is that Bonham was open-minded stylistically. So we talked about um, a lot of different styles. Uh, Fool in the Rain is sort of this funky purdy shuffle. Uh, Hot Dog off of... um, off of uh, Into the Outdoor, the song Hot Dog is like a country shuffle. Southbound Suarez uh, off the same album is kind of a a Latin thing. Um, And there's another Latin section in the middle of Fool in the Rain, uh, which also starts in a very tricky place and always threw me when when I listened to it. Um, and it's Bonham playing a samba with lots of uh, hand percussion and stuff going on as well. Um, and, you know, a couple other tunes that are very stylistically different. Uh, Carousel Ombra, of course, which is 
um, a, a tune that was on Into the Outdoor. It's a nine-minute song, and it features mostly synthesizers. And of course, in the mid and later 70s, a lot of bands were experimenting. Well, really going back to the early 70s, but uh, a lot of bands were heavily experimenting with synthesizers. Zeppelin hadn't really done that. John Paul Jones would play keyboards sometimes on stage. He'd play an electric piano uh, or something like that. But to really get into the synthesizer thing uh, was very new and very different. And I think a lot of people didn't really like Carousel Amber, but again, to me, I think Led Zeppelin very successfully brought together uh, the, the Led Zeppelin feel. Uh, and Bonham does all kinds of cool things on uh, Carousel Amber, including uh, a whole a section, a part of the song where he plays 16th notes on the hi-hat, which is something that was not typical of him. And again, the reason, the reason he was playing that way is that he was listening to what was going on in the music, but I think also he was very influenced by funk. And of course, during the 70s, James Brown really exploded, Tower of Power. Funk became very mainstream. And by sort of, you know, 77, 78, when they're recording this album, uh, they're influenced by that. Um, there's another uh, tune called The Crunge, uh, which is uh, another, it's an absolute tribute, a direct tribute to James Brown. And uh, it, it begins with this crazy 9-8 funk groove, which would, would have been hard for any band to play. And Bonham makes it sound easy. And of course, the bass line is right there. And the guitarist, Jimmy Page, is sort of playing a funk thing. He's sort of doing the chucka chucka 16th note thing. So, you know, they were exploring and experimenting. And the reason I bring all these different songs up and all these different styles is that one of the things that keeps a band successful or keeps their career going is that they are not afraid to explore and yet manage to keep their own voice. And I think that is really something that Bonham was very, very good at. He explored time signatures. He explored different styles. He explored, um, you know, uh, trying things in different ways. Um, but at the same time, he always sounded like himself. And I think that's a, a great model for us all to, <laughs> to, to, to live by. And especially if you are in one band for a long period of time. I was in you know, Royal Crown Review. I mean, we're still a functioning entity, but more in name than anything. Um, but, you know, we put out seven or eight albums in the course of, of, of the time that I was in the band. And um, you know, for each new album, we wanted to do something different. And yet, how can we still stay true to the things that people liked about us? And so it's a hard thing to be able to do. And I think John Bonham did it very successfully uh, in... Um, in this in this band, Led Zeppelin. I think another band that did it very successfully, although they had a much shorter career, but still managed to put out nine or ten records, was The Doors. Uh, and of course, people know the hits, but there's so much great, interesting stuff happening. And uh, John Densmore, although he was not as technically advanced as Bonham, uh, really brought a lot of interesting things to the table. So... Um, in any case, I, I think that is enough for now. Uh, I encourage you to go check out these songs. Hopefully, uh, Robert will make a playlist again and um, put that up on Spotify. And uh, you can go listen to these things, and I'll put up some of these transcriptions in the show notes. So, uh, if you are enjoying these podcasts, uh, please do let me know. Get back to me. Uh, sometimes I feel like I'm dancing around in the desert by myself. So, uh, please do uh, send me feedback if you like them, if you hate them. Uh, you can write to me uh, on my website, danielglass.com. You can write to me via Facebook. I'm very active on Facebook. Uh, you can send me a tweet. I'm available. You can find me wherever. And, uh, you know, if you enjoy the podcast, please uh, consider rating, uh, putting in a rating on iTunes and elsewhere for the Drummer's Resource Podcast. That always helps. The better the reviews, the more uh, we can do for you all. So that wraps up another edition of the Daniel Glass Show, only here on Drummer's Resource. Have a wonderful day and keep slamming home those bottom-like bass drums. Bottom-like bass drums.